about that? If used to say, she's going to be with the Lord. She used to say, I think we're going to be surprised at who all is in heaven. And I think that's probably true. And Billy Graham himself, in responding to a listener a number of years ago, though, said, I think we're also going to be surprised at who all is in hell. There are going to be some really nice church members, people that on the outside look really, really good, that are going to be in hell, right along with the serial killers and the child molesters. I assume you've been following the, the kind of uh, avalanche of uh, charges against uh, prominent men in the entertainment and journalism and uh, political worlds these last two months, starting with Harvey Weinstein. I, just as a side note, to me it's, it's almost comical um, how there's such indignation now, especially in the entertainment industry, about what they've been promoting for decades, if you have sexual instincts, act on them. And now all of a sudden, it's, it's, it's bad. It's interesting. There was a, an article written, a column written in the Washington Post this week, this past week, that basically they didn't have, the, they didn't have this as the title, but the title was the, the sexual conservatives were right all along. We, we need to review how we're thinking about sexuality. And so this last week, Matt Lauer co-host of today, uh, latest casualty, uh, got fired, $25 million a year job, boom, he's out. 20 years of co-hosting this because of what um, he did with women and the things he said to them and so forth and so on. Garrison Keillor, um, that sounds like that's a little bit iffy in terms of the accusation, but prominent men, people that keep track of these things are saying we're up now in the upper 30s of men who've been either fired or are facing criminal charges over the things they've done with women or said to them and so forth. And, and the interesting um, verb that I keep hearing on news reports about how people are thinking about these men, words like stunned, and surprised. Why is that? Now, that's not true with guys like Harvey Weinstein. Here's a guy who was, his behavior was so, such common knowledge that they even built into his contract uh, that he had to pay back money when they made settlements about people, about women who uh, made claims against him or accusations against him. But by and large, these men Many of them have their admirers and people who have really respected them. And they're, so they're stunned when these kind of allegations come to the surface. Why? Because the emphasis seems to be more on what they did than on who they are. Matt Lauer was widely regarded in journalism circles. He, he had great uh, interviews. He had three uh, interviews with sitting presidents. Um, he got some of the best interviews. He did very credible work. He did um, uh, compassion work in the community. Marriage, not so good. But by and large, people saw him this way because of what he did. And now they're seeing him this way as in who he is. Same with truth. Many of these prominent people, Representative Conyers, a lion in the House, the U.S. House of Representatives. And now all of a sudden, a lot of concern about who he is. Why? Because before, all we talked about, all we thought about was what he did. 
And I want to talk about that piece this morning because there are the, the Congressman um, Conyers and the Matt Lowers in the church as well. Where people look at us and they conclude that you are, you are this kind of person because of what you do, what I see you doing, in the, maybe in the church. And this person serves well. They, we know that they talk to their neighbors about Jesus Christ and, and they teach Sunday school or they usher in the church. They're here working in the nursery. And we know that they're really nice, really nice people here in, in church on Sunday morning. And yet maybe, maybe if you're married to that person, maybe if you work with that person, maybe if you're friends with that person, it's not all what you see on Sunday morning. This is the kind of thing that, this is kind of the climate that Jesus came into. You know, we, you'll hear a lot of messages <clears throat> from this platform about um, people who claim to be born again, but then their, their conduct reveals who they really are. But, but for Jesus, when he came into the Jew, Jewish culture, he was coming into a culture where conduct was everything, but the heart was messed up in a big way. And that's what we're going to see this morning as we read these uh, verses in Luke chapter 11. Starting at verse 37. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and he took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand-washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. And then the Lord said to him, You Pharisees, and, and think about the Pharisees as kind of a denomination. They were a very strict denomination of Jewish people. <clears throat> very careful in their observance of the law and rules about the law. And the Lord said to him, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish. Now he moves on from China to people. But inside you are filthy, he says, full of greed, wickedness, fools. Didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? And so clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you will be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you, for you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. Teacher, said an expert in religious law. Now these, depending on your translation, might say scribes here. These are the people that were responsible to interpret the law and, and give laws about the law. You have insulted us too in, in what you just said. Yes, said Jesus, basically, I meant to. What sorrow also awaits you experts in religious law. For you crush people with unbearable religious demands, and you never lift a finger to ease that burden. What sorrow awaits you? 
For you build monuments for the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. But in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God, in his wisdom, said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world, from the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. And here's the key verse of this whole passage. What sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. As Jesus was leaving, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Father, we are a broken people. We trace our lineage back to Adam, who violated the one law that you established for him and his wife to observe in the garden. One law, one rule. Everything else was open to him. But there was one rule, and he broke it. And since then, all of his offspring, including us, have been scarred by sin. We are sinners both by nature and sinners by nurture. And because of that, we have been estranged from you, alienated from you. And yet the good news is even as we rejoice this month, is that you sent your son for sinners like us. You did not say, you have to come up to my standard or I'm going to pour out my wrath on you. You said, you can come up to my standard. Not by being very, 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 very good and thus Santa will bring you presents but by being men, women, boys, and girls of faith in Jesus. And if you have faith in Jesus and his work of dying and being raised to life again, you can be reconciled to me, not just in a little way, but you actually become my family. What good news. I pray for the Spirit to speak to us this morning and for the enemy to be silenced to us for the glory of God and for the good of humanity. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> Two main points I want to make at the outset this morning. First, that religion pays much attention to what people do, and religion doesn't pay much attention to who people are. Now, let's get some definitions out of the way here. First of all, religion can... Uh, can and often does mean different kinds of faith. And so, for example, we would say um, Buddhism is a religion and Christianity is a religion. We would say Islam is a religion and Judaism is a religion. 
But the way I'm talking about religion this morning is the way we often use it, especially in Protestant circles, to speak about the performance, the external things that are done by religious people. There are many circles in which if those things are done, there's really no concern about who the person is, or maybe we should say it this way, the assumption is the person is a certain way by virtue of what they do. And so that's the way we're going to be using religion this morning. When we talk about religion leads people to hell, there, there are circles in which um, religion conveys to folks, if you do this, 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 then that's, that gives me assurance as someone looking on that you are a certain way. And the problem with that is, as Jesus pointed out, that may not be true. That you may do certain things that lead other people to believe you're a certain way, but you're really not. This is why when Jesus came on the scene and, and he talked about how hard it is for a person who, um, uh, a rich person, to enter the kingdom of heaven, that confused people. Because they thought the very fact that someone was rich was an indication that God was blessing them. And Jesus says, no, it's not the case. The Pharisees, the teachers of, of the law, as they moved around among the people, people saw them as pristine examples of people who loved God. This is why it's so unsettling for people today when pastors fall. It wasn't that long ago when the pastor of the largest church in the world, Pastor Yang Yi Cho in South Korea, was indicted on several counts of embezzlement. He embezzled $12 million from his church in South Korea, sentenced to three years prison. When I was a, a, a boy, someone was a Roman Catholic priest. They were widely regarded and admired even by people who weren't Catholic in the community because they were seen as someone who, who really uh, trusted God, had faith in God, uh, promoted God to the community as well as their church. They were so committed to God that they denied themselves the, the joy even of marriage. That's not true today anymore, is it? If you're a Roman Catholic priest, you are by and large painted with a, a wide brush by everybody in your community as a child molester. There was a pastor about six weeks ago who was in, um, sentenced to life in prison without parole down in Georgia. Um, he murdered his fiance, 46-year-old pastor, murdered his fiance. He also found out at the same time um, that he was engaged to this woman he killed, he was engaged to another woman, and there was a whole double life that was underneath the surface that nobody seemed to know about. But as long as pastors do certain things, you know, you, 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 you have the funeral of uh, this person's loved one in the family. You, you are by their side when there are hurts in the family. You, you counsel them. You teach the word of God to them. The assumption is by virtue of the things those pastors do that they must be certain kinds of people. And Jesus comes onto the scene of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and everybody regards them as these are the folks that are closest to God. And Jesus says to the Pharisees who were criticizing him because he didn't wash his hands before mealtime, and that wasn't a hygiene thing. They didn't know what germs were back then yet. It was a ceremonial thing. 
In fact, if you read some of the laws that people like the Pharisees had about uh, washing, it was all about not just that you washed your hands, but how you washed them. And if you washed them one way, it wasn't sufficient. You had to wash them another way. Uh, sequence was important. You not only washed the hands and the arms, but you had to wash them one before the other. And Jesus says, you're all worried about the outside. What about the inside? You know, if you have a coffee cup and you wash the outside, but there's still coffee grounds on the inside and, and other things there, it's, it's not ready to be used again. So much of what the Pharisees did was all about appearances. I want people to regard me as holy by virtue of what I do. You, you tithe, give a tenth, not only of your gold and silver, but your herb garden. And you, you, tithe, you give a tenth of your herbs to, to the synagogue. And yet Jesus said, you don't care a whit about the poor. You want to show up at the synagogue and put your gold and silver in those, in those chests that are seated there to receive offering, and, and you put the herbs in there as well. But the people out in the street that are begging, no welfare system in Israel except by almsgiving, you don't give them any money. Why? Because your heart, you do all these external things, but your heart is full of wickedness and greed. Teachers of the law are the guys like me, the, the preachers who interpret the scriptures to people. And they would pile law upon law upon law. The, the law, for example, of keeping the Sabbath might literally have dozens of rules applied to it. How to make sure that you don't work on the Sabbath. When we were in Israel, um, we were staying at the uh, Dead Sea, in a hotel at the Dead Sea on Sabbath day. And I, I forget what floor we, our room was on, maybe the 12th or something. And so Betty and I get on the el- elevator, and we push the, floor, uh, the button for the 12th floor. Elevator goes up to the second floor and stops. People get on, people get off. Elevator goes up to the third floor and stops. And here we find out that on the Sabbath, the elevators are programmed only to go one floor at a time. You can push all the buttons you want. It's not going to take you to that floor. Why? Because they're trying to keep people from working on the Sabbath, and to push a button on the elevator is seen as working on the Sabbath. It took us a really long time to get to our floor. <laughs> Actually, we finally gave up and got off about the fourth floor and walked the rest of the way up the stairs. Worked on the Sabbath. These are the kinds of things that the teachers of the religious, uh, religious laws would, would do. And that's what Jesus meant when he said, you, you pile on things that God never intended the people to do. You pile law upon law. And then you don't give them any kind of relief. You pile these burdens up and then you don't do anything to help relieve them of these burdens. Religion pays a lot of attention to what people do, but it pays little attention to who people are. As I said, the guys like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would be viewed by the people of their day as very, very spiritual and very, very godly until Jesus showed up. Now he says, in, uh, let me have you turn to Matthew chapter 5. This is early in Jesus' ministry. <clears throat> Verse 20, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this to the people, verse 20. 
I warn you, unless your righteousness, in other words, your goodness, your good behavior, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, every time I read that verse, I think about how skillful Jesus was. He said a lot of things in it with just a few words. The first thing that he did was probably discourage the average person listening to him. Because they think, wow, I, I, could, never, I could never be as good as the Pharisees and these teachers are, let alone better than them. That's exactly what Jesus wanted them to figure out. You can't be that good. For the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that were listening in, it was probably a mixed bag for them. On the one hand, they are surprised to hear that they need to be better than they are to enter the kingdom of God. On the other hand, there's a little hope for them because it sounds like they don't need to have much improvement, but just a little bit more improvement. Jesus knew that these were, the, these were the paragons of virtue. These are the people that folks compared themselves to. And Jesus wanted to make sure everybody knew that these guys, they haven't arrived. He's, he's trying to bring the bad news to everybody that you can't be good enough. This is the, kind of the beginning of rocking their boat. Now, for the scribes, the teachers of the law, they were very evangelistic. And they would go around and tell people about what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Verse 52, as I said back here in Luke 11, is the key verse in this passage where he says, What sorrow awaits you, experts in religious law, for you remove the key of knowledge from people. You don't enter the kingdom, meaning you don't go to heaven, and you prevent others from entering the kingdom. You prevent others from going to heaven. Jesus said it this way in, in Matthew's account, chapter 23, verse 15. He says, you travel over land and sea to make one convert. And when you do, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. A lot of good people are going to be in hell. A lot of good church members get it all right on the outside are going to be in hell. Why? Because Christianity is not religion. Christianity is not religion. Religion says do this and don't do this and you'll be made right with God. In Christianity, <clears throat> good deeds do not impress God. Listen, you can be a very, very good Amish person on the outside. You travel by buggy everywhere you go. You shun electricity unless you have a solar panel in your shed. You run everything with gas and wind. You dress mostly in black. You listen to the word taught in Sunday in German. You can be a very good Roman Catholic. I have a friend that would get up and go to confession. He, he had to be at work by 6. And he had an hour's drive. He would get up and go to work. Uh, go to confession before he went to work. Every day. 
You can be a very good Amish person and go to hell. You can be a very good Roman Catholic person and go to hell. Listen, you can be a very good evangelical Christian and go to hell. Because Christianity is not religion. This is a passage that some of you know, maybe even have memorized. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. It starts out with the bad news, and it gives us worse news. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, the good things that we do, they are nothing but, say it with me, filthy rags. Why is that? Certainly the testimony of Scripture is that God wants us to do good things. Absolutely. But because we're sinners, everything we try to do is tainted with ulterior motives and sinful desires. I mean, guys, when we dated, we put on our best behavior, didn't we? And for some of us, after our wives said, I do... They turned around and looked at us and they said, who in the heck are you? Because we did such a good job while we were dating, putting on such a good facade. We hid all that bad stuff. Ulterior motives. We're on the hunt. We're, we're, we're after our prey. And then when we get it, all of that good stuff goes away. All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. That means there's nothing that we can do that is acceptable before God. No, no teaching of a care group. No extraordinary um, extroverted greeting like we give people on a Sunday morning. No, not even sharing the gospel. Even sharing the gospel is tinged with bad motives, isn't it, sometimes? We want people to think well of us. We want to be able to tell the story. I led somebody to Jesus Christ. We want to put a notch on our spiritual gun. You see, it's not good behavior. It's not moral. Christianity is not a moral improvement plan that changes behavior. Christianity is rather a grace-driven, faith-responding work of Jesus Christ that changes people, which ultimately changes behavior, but it does so from the inside out rather than from the outside in. And it cleans up the mess that we are from top to bottom, from outside in. Let me take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Paul says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, taking that verse and lifting it out of its context and just sharing it with someone is scary. If you do wrong, and all of us have, and all of us do, if you do wrong, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, or commit adultery, 
or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people. And if you haven't been named up till now, you probably are there. That's where I show up. Or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And Paul could have gone on and on and on and named every sin in the book so that you and I make sure we were covered. None of these will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, Paul is determined here to paint a very hopeless picture for all sinners. But now he shifts and he moves from hopeless to hopeful. Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by being a good person and a great Sunday school teacher, by giving a tenth of your income or 20% of your income, by sharing the gospel, by taking meals to people that just got out of the hospital. No, 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 no. You were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Just let that wash over you. Man, is that good news or what? I think the folks among us that have the most problem with painting the outward right and leaving the inward unpainted, uncleansed, are those of us who grew up in the church. And we grew up in an environment in which folks are always trying to improve the outside. And we grew up watching people that were very, 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 well, at least in how they presented themselves at church, very good. I've shared with you before, I still remember the day, a um, guy in our church, a, a little church I grew up in, about 60 people, I found out this guy smoked. I didn't know anybody that smoked at that point in my life. And I was sure someday I was going to find a verse about smoking in the Bible. I just knew everybody in our church thought that was awful, and I found out this guy smoked. I'm like, and, and seriously, in my adolescent mind, Dave moved from saved to lost, just like that. And so I think many of us grow up in the church really misapprehending the gospel and viewing this behavior, at least this perception of behavior, as this is what it means. I, I, I was taught that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but somehow, all through those years, there was a bigger truth, and that was that I saved myself by my performance. And maybe some of you are like that. And we convince ourselves that we're okay. I remember, I've shared before, I got baptized at 11, got saved at 25. That's not the normal sequence for you who don't know. And I remember in my, in my early 20s, um, there were evidences in my life that things were not right. But I was, uh, my wife and I were leaders in a youth 
group. Um, I taught Sunday school. Uh, we gave a tenth of our income. And so those kinds of things convinced me I was right until the Spirit of God spoke to me that day when I was 25 and said, you're not right. And I'm like, of course I'm right. I do all these things. No, you're not right. It may be like Jesus' words, you're inside full of greed and wickedness. It might be, in, in my case, the Spirit said, you, you're about to have a child and, and you have nothing spiritual to give that child. You can feed and clothe her, but you have nothing spiritual to give to her. I'm like, what? And I wonder today how many church people here might need to wrestle with. Yeah, I've got it all going on on the surface but the heart's not right. I do just enough things, avoid doing just enough other bad things that people think when they look at me, I've, I'm good with God. And if the, if the Spirit of God is speaking to you this morning about this, do not delay getting alone with him and in prayer, asking some very hard questions and asking God to reveal the truth to you. Don't turn on the football game this afternoon. Go instead to your bedroom and get alone with God and do some business with him. Sit down. If you're married, sit down with your spouse. If he or she is a believer, say, Honey, you know me better than anybody else. Do you see things in my life that don't add up with the things I do and don't do? What would you say about my heart? My wife, after I came to Christ, would have been able to look back in those years and say something wasn't right. And I prayed for you. I didn't know what was wrong. She didn't know I wasn't saved, but she knew that something wasn't right. Get with your spouse and give them permission to speak candidly into your life. Or a good friend. There's nothing that matters more. There's nothing that matters more in this life than knowing Christ. Let's pray together.